You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. And uh, today, before we jump into God's Word, I just want to share a couple things and we're going to pray. Uh, next week, uh, if you were here early, you may have heard this. We are blessed to have with us a special guest leading us in worship. His name's Curtis Parks. And uh, Curtis uh, was in the top 50 on American Idol one season. Uh, more importantly, he's a former worship leader for National Community Church in Washington, D.C. Uh, we've uh, supported him. He planted a church in Nashville called Bridges Church more recently. And uh, we're going to have him here next week leading worship. It's going to be awesome. We've had him here before, so you won't want to miss that. Uh, Curtis is so anointed and just does an incredible job. And we're looking forward to having him with us next Sunday. So that's going to be really cool. And uh, next week, we're going to be finishing out our series we're in right now called The Genius of Jesus, kicking off in June, we're going to be walking through, I think, one of the most important series topics we can cover as a church. And it's a topic that uh, seems impossible, and that's kind of the title. So the title of the message we're kicking off in June is called Unity, Peace, and Other Impossible Goals. What is more impossible in our world today than unity and peace? And uh, this is the crazy thing. Jesus pray this prayer 2,000 years ago, it's in John 17, that his prayer was that we, that we would be one. If Jesus prayed it, I think it's possible. So throughout the month of June, we're going to be talking about that, about unity, peace, and other impossible goals. And today, we're continuing our, uh, our series uh, called The Genius of Jesus. And before we jump into God's word, I want to pray uh, and pray that God would just speak to us. I believe it's not an accident that you're here today or you're watching online, that you've joined us. I believe there's a purpose in it. And, and I don't want to rush through this moment without missing the purpose God has for your life. Would you bow your heads with me as we just open in prayer? God, I thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for the vibrance of your word, that your word is living and breathing and active, Lord, that your word speaks to us, Lord. God, with all the voices and commentary that we experience throughout the week, the hours and hours of other voices, God, I pray in these few moments, Lord, that your word would cut through, Lord, all of the the junk and the things that weigh us down, that you would speak right to our circumstance and situation, that you would challenge us and change us in these few moments together. We thank you, God, for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Um, now, I, I want to tell you a quick story uh, from when I was in college, and uh, my college stories may be a little different than some of yours. I went to Bible college, so um, I remember all of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, no shot at you if you don't, but... Uh, I, I remember this, this one moment. It was the spring semester, 2003. I was a junior uh, in Bible college. And uh, I had uh, really overcommitted myself. I was an RA that year. Uh, I was the treasurer of student government. I was working a part-time job. Uh, I was one of the captains of the soccer team. Uh, on top of that, I carried 17 credits at school. Um, I was on this uh, mission to get everything done and do it all. Uh, which is uh, some of my, one of my major weaknesses. And it was a really insane year. That semester, I was enrolled in a class. It was uh, Old Testament survey, which if you're not familiar, Old Testament survey is basically just going through the entire Old Testament. So walking through all 39 books that are contained in the Old Testament, which is the first part of the Bible. Second part is New Testament. 
So we were walking through the Old Testament, and, and we had two required readings in that, that semester. The first one was, of course, reading the Old Testament. We had to read all 39 books, one semester. Had to read all of them. On top of that, I had to read this lovely textbook right here, Encountering the Old Testament. Beautiful textbook, really thick. Um, that was on top of all the other courses that I had uh, readings for. Uh, as I mentioned, I was pretty swamped. At the end of the semester, um, our professor uh, asked us, required us, to fill out this piece of paper saying how much uh, of the reading, required reading, we had completed. And our grade was partly dependent on how much we got done. So, you know, you get a lot done, you get a better grade, you get less done, uh, you get a worse grade. Uh, that semester, I worked as hard as I could to get all the readings completed for that class and all the other courses that I had, uh, at, but I hadn't gotten all the reading done. And I remember filling out the, 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 the piece of paper and uh, I rationalized that I had all the best intentions, uh, that uh, in the end, I was involved in good, well-meaning things, and it was probably okay to fudge a little bit how much of the reading I actually completed. And uh, that I had actually read everything when I really had not. Now, I passed the class that year, went into my summer break, and that decision to kind of fudge that uh, sheet, knowing I hadn't read the entire textbook, but saying I had, kind of haunted me throughout my whole summer break. I, I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do. I wasn't sure how to respond. Do I come and confess to my professor? Like, he might make me repeat the class, and I don't have time to repeat the class. Or, or he could expel me from Bible college, and I'd be an embarrassment to my family. Or, 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 or maybe, maybe I can just, like, confess to God, and, like, between me and God, we're good. And, like, as long as it's between me and God, we're good, we're probably good, right? Um, I don't even have to talk to my professor ever again. Uh, and as I went back to college that fall, I finally decided <clears throat> I was going to come clean to my professor. I, I remember walking into his office. I was incredibly nervous. Wasn't sure what was going to happen, how he was going to respond. I sat down, shared with him what I'd done or really had not done. <clears throat> and uh, I, I braced myself for what was about to be handed to me. <clears throat> like, what's going to take place? I had played this out in my head so many times over, and I was ready for the punishment that was going to come my way because of my own mistakes. I knew that what I had done was wrong, and I was ready for whatever those consequences might be. After all, I was trained to be a pastor of all things. And if anyone should be held to a high standard, it's a minister in training. As I shared with him uh, what, what, I, what I had not done, he sat back for a moment and then began to respond. And he first, he thanked me for coming and sharing with him. He said it was a really mature decision and he commended me for coming forward like that. And he set up this arrangement where throughout that semester, I could actually do the reading that I had not done and report back to him. And if I completed it within that semester, uh, the dishonest submission I'd given him would be forgiven. This was a complete shock. I, I didn't see any of that coming. Uh, he could have made my life very, very miserable and difficult, and, I, and justifiably so. I had made a major mistake. I couldn't believe he would be so forgiving and extend such grace in a moment that he really did not have to, and in a moment where I probably needed to learn the importance of being a man of my word. That day, I learned a lot uh, more, a bigger lesson than I learned in any other classroom. It was a lesson about the pain, the beauty, 
and the elegance of grace. I'll, I'll be honest, uh, Dr. Starner, who uh, I had that day that, for that class, who ironically was uh, the head of our school here at Calvary for a few years, which I found out later, uh, small world. But um, Dr. Starner was not one of my favorite professors that fateful semester. He's actually one of my least favorite professors. I had his class right after lunch. The sun would be beating down in that class. It was warm. He talked really soft, and it was really difficult to stay awake. But after being the recipient of that undeserved grace, I looked for opportunities to sign up for his classes. In fact, one of my favorite classes I ever took in Bible college was one of his classes after that. It was Old Testament prophets, where we just focused in on the major and minor prophets. And I absolutely loved that class. Uh, His wisdom and insight took on an entirely new dimension, not because he had forgiven me, but because he had been the giver of this transformational grace. And, And today, what we want to talk about is this idea of grace. And grace is this really messy, interesting, unique concept. And it can be applied in so many different ways. And grace is one of those things that is remarkable to receive and and equally beautiful to watch. I I love watching sports. I don't know if any of you are big sports fans. Um, But as I was a kid, I, I love watching sports. One of my favorite movies to watch when I was a child was this movie called The Pistol. And it, it, it never hit theaters, it was only on uh, VHS. And it was a story of Pistol Pete Maravich. I don't know if any of you know who Pistol Pete Maravich is. You can Google him later. But Pistol Pete grew up in Aliquippa, eventually would go to LSU to play college basketball, and, and eventually play in the NBA from 1970 to 1980. Um, he was a scrawny kid that was way, way too small to play basketball. He, he didn't fit the, the build but would do astounding things in these unique, remarkable ways. Like how he played basketball was different than anyone else, how anyone else had ever played basketball. I loved playing basketball, still do to this day. And and growing up playing basketball in my driveway with my hoop there, uh, I loved trying to do some of the things that Pistol Pete would do. Trying to play basketball, pass the ball, and dribble the way he would do. One of the things he would do in the movie oftentimes, uh, he would dribble the ball really close to the ground, like so, so close to the ground, and he would just dribble like a thousand times a second. It was just amazing. I would sit around our driveway trying to do that and like kick it off my foot and it would go rolling down the street. And I'm trying to do the same because he was remarkable. He had this amazing way of taking something that should be impossible and making it look effortless. It was like the basketball became an extension of his body. How he played, passed, and shot the basketball seemed so natural, and yet he was doing things that no one else could ever achieve. I'll never forget this this one scene in the movie that uh, tells the story of when he was a teenager, and he was in the soda shop in his town there in Aliquippa, And, and he sat there for an hour spinning the basketball on his finger, now, I, I've, I've spun the basketball on my finger for like, uh, I don't know, tenth of a second. Um, maybe if you like took a video of that and just put it on repeat, like a, 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 a GIF loop or something, it would go for an hour. But he literally for an hour, spinning it on his finger. And he's going between the fingers. I mean, he was just so talented. At the end of that hour, he, he walks out of the soda shop across the street to the playground that was across the street. And there was a basketball hoop there. And he's spinning and he's spinning and he pops it up in the air and headbutts it into the hoop. I was like, oh my goodness. I couldn't even get the, 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 the ball to spin, let alone headbutt it into the hoop. The guy was remarkable. He, he was incredible. The way Pistol Pete played the game of basketball, how he carried himself, was a distinct grace of genius. 
Someone that makes something complex, difficult, and impossible look so simple and elementary. And this is the unique dynamic with this word that we use called grace. While while grace can refer to to something that possesses elegance and beauty and form and, 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 and emotion, it also refers to an expression of favor. And and while these two definitions are completely distinct, like someone can be so graceful in how they dance or how they paint or how they play a sport, and yet grace is something, this undeserved favor that is granted to us. Two completely different definitions. I believe there's a connection between these two definitions. See, See, this is why. Grace, by definition, is transcendent. It is recognized in every culture, every setting, every language. Its mark is unmistakable and unforgettable. Grace carries with it a touch of the divine. And if you or I would have had the privilege of watching Vincent van Gogh paint one of his incredible masterpieces, or, or, or to, to listen to Beethoven map out a concerto, or, or we would most definitely have sat there in awe of the grace in which they work, and really the privilege and favor of getting to watch them, a genius, Do their thing. And this is the question we often ask ourselves when we watch the grace of genius. When we watch someone who is remarkable at what they do. When we watch greatness play out in front of us. Whether it's in sport, in art, or any other field. Are we simply observers of this grace that's at work in front of us? Or or is there a grace that I too can know? Is there a grace that you can know? And as I mentioned, I've been the grateful, very grateful recipient of of the wonder of grace. But can you and I also become an elegant expression of grace with our lives? Is it possible to take this sometimes awkward journey of being a human being and somehow make it graceful? What a remarkable experience we would have had if we could have sat there. Hopefully with our cell phone because it would be really fun to videotape, but watch Vincent Van Gogh create beauty with nothing more than a paintbrush and some paint or observe Beethoven's script a complex symphony with the effort of a child and while what we would have observed would be the clear clear definition of genius so many geniuses like these throughout history have had other aspects of their lives that were much less awe-inspiring that that weren't so graceful while they may have been great at art they were horrible at relationships. Well, while they may be great composers, they were horrific human beings. Uh, their paintings or artistic creations may have been a thing of beauty, but their arrogance and the way they lived was nothing short of deplorable. And yet their greatness and the grace at which they operate has brought us to accept the less desirable aspects of who they were. You, you can even go as far uh, as to say that arrogance, dysfunction, or ego are almost expected with individuals who display such genius. It's a given. Like, if you're really good at these things, if you are that great at something, how can't you be so obsessed with your ego and how awesome you are? And maybe this is the reason that we often miss the genius of Jesus. Because he never exhibited any of these negative attributes that we usually associate with genius. For those closest to Jesus, he treated them with respect and with value. For, for Jesus never took a posture where he was better than someone else. 
He, he walked with a unique humility and a genuine heart to serve. All of these are so foreign to those oftentimes graced with genius. Christ's genius, though, wasn't in necessarily just what he did. It was seen in how he calls us to interact with each other. How he teaches us to carry the burdens of life with his unmatched grace. Now, the reality of life is we often function best when all of the conditions are just perfect. When we have the most sleep, which uh, for Heidi and I with four kids, that, doesn't, that world doesn't exist. Um, but when you have maximum amount of sleep, when you have the right budget or the right people around you, like that's when you're at your best. These are all the times that we find ourselves operating at our prime, our prime function. And yet, the moments when we're backed against the wall, when we're walking through the fire of the world, seems to be caving in around us. These are the moments where grace is most needed. Some of Jesus' most profound words about walking with grace through the hard realities of life are found in part of one of his best-known sermons, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes. And, And Beatitude literally means supreme blessedness. It's derived from the Latin beatus, which means both happy and blessed. And, and this is the kind of irony of the beatitudes. Uh, it's extreme or, or, or supreme blessedness at a time when it shouldn't be. The blessings Jesus talks about are not the blessings or happiness we experience on the mountaintops moments when everything's going awesome or well, but the grace that's present in the midst of the storm. And, and the beatitudes, these verses, they're contained right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, chapter five, starting in verse three. And here's what it says. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sounds so crazy. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. All of these run 100% contrary to like our human nature. You're like, those aren't the way things work. But this is what Jesus is saying. Counterculture, like I'm saying things that may not seem like they are, but they are. He goes on verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now it's easy, it's easy to speak those words in a church setting like this. You know, where everything is, you know, comfortable and and nice and, and, and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. But it's an entirely different thing to practice these in the face of harsh often unfair conditions that life can bring our way. One of the clear moments we see Jesus flow with this unexpected, undeserved grace was near the end of his life here on earth. One of Jesus' closest friends, uh, one of his followers, Judas, had, had made this determination that he was going to betray Jesus. And he, he uh, uh, goes to Jesus where Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane outside of Jerusalem and Judas shows up with this group of soldiers who are carrying swords and clubs. Usually not the way you want to meet someone. Judas had been sent by the religious leaders because he, he sold out Jesus for an amount of money. And he's been sent by the religious leaders to go and seize Jesus. And, and he had given them this signal 
this, to the soldiers, hey, when I do this, that's the man you're gonna arrest. And here's what it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 48. This is the sign. He said, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. So Judas is like, hey, the man that I kiss, he's gonna go kiss him on the cheek, which was a sign of affection at that, in that culture, which was very normal. Uh, that's the man you're gonna arrest. And as Judas approaches Jesus, before he does this, he addresses Jesus in the normal respect and honor you would, ex- you, you would see a, a student speaking to his rabbi. And he says this in verse 49. He says, greetings, rabbi. And then he kisses him. One of the most interesting verses in scripture. I don't know if you've ever been stabbed in the back by a close friend. If you're you're breathing, you probably have. This verse right here, can you put that back on the screen? This verse right here, verse 49, is your verse. If you've been stabbed in the back, this is your verse. Greetings, rabbi, and then he kisses him. It's the kiss of death. Like, all in one expression, he both says he cares about him and wants to kill him at the same time. What a horrible verse. Now, this is the point in most action films where as Judas leans in, Jesus puts him in a headlock, right? And yells at everyone around with weapons, put them down or I'm gonna kill him or something, do something horrible. And they all put their weapons down and then, you know, Jesus like roundhouse kicks them all and, and like he's victorious and he's, you know, our, our savior and he's like the Chuck Norris of the first century and we love him. Um, but that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't do that. Jesus didn't operate that way. Instead, he responds with, with such a, a, a simple, affectionate tone. His words are the words of a, one friend to another. But, but considering what was about to happen, these words are covered in grace. Listen to how Jesus responds. When, when Judas comes to him and says, greetings, rabbi, and kisses him, here's how Jesus responds. This is in the New Living Translation. He says, my friend, can you say my friend? My friend, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Can you fathom those words, that, that Judas was coming with armed soldiers to arrest Jesus. Jesus was gonna be beaten and crucified. Jesus knew all of that. This wasn't a shock to him. And, and Jesus still has the incredible resolve to say, my friend, go ahead and do what you've come for. The soldiers with Judas then stepped forward and they begin to seize Jesus. They begin to arrest him. As this happens, one of Jesus' other disciples, Peter, pulls out his sword and he's going to defend Jesus. And he swings at the soldier with all the passion and energy he has. Now, either Peter is one of the most skilled swordsmen in all of Judea, or he has a horrific aim because he was aiming for his head and missed and hit his ear. We don't know which. Matthew doesn't tell us. Either way, this soldier... Loses his ear. Peter cuts the soldier's ear off. Jesus immediately commands Peter to put away his sword, reaches down to the ground, takes the soldier's ear that's now been removed from his head, is bleeding everywhere, and he places it on the soldier's head. And in a second, Jesus performs his final physical miracle before he's crucified, and he heals the soldier's ear right there immediately. What? Like, this is crazy. 
<laughs> While this all happened in a, in a frenzy of activity, Matthew, who recorded this, surely saw the implications of what was unfolding here. One of Jesus' closest friends and 12 disciples leans in to kiss him, only to betray him. This action had to cut so deeply, and yet Jesus doesn't respond with an act of retaliation or violence. That doesn't mean that Jesus was powerless. He had the power to heal or destroy. And as Peter becomes violent, Jesus makes it clear that, that he had not come into this world to inflict wounds, but to heal wounds. And this is one of those moments that Jesus' actions really are head scratchers. Like, if we were close friends to Jesus and we had the, the uh, opportunity and the freedom to speak into his life and to question him and ask him things, we would have been like, Jesus, that was your chance. Like, Peter was protecting you. We're, we're going we're to build this kingdom you've been talking about and, and you just ruined it all. Why did you heal that man? They're going to hurt you. They might even kill you. But why would Jesus heal the wound of someone coming to seize him, knowing that he was going to lead, it would lead to his own beating and eventual death? Why would Jesus choose to still love someone that's about to betray him? Why would he not allow force to be used against those bringing force upon him? It's a really interesting question. Those are questions that go even deeper when you bring them into 2022. Jesus knew this man, these soldiers, and even Judas fit all the characteristics of an enemy. Check all the boxes. Judas checked all the boxes of what it means to betray someone, to stab them in the back, to turn on them. All of the characteristics. Except Jesus doesn't respond in the way that we would assume, in the way that would be almost uh, expected, accepted, and understood in today's culture. When someone who is checking the boxes of an enemy, and for whatever reason, someone who has betrayed you or wronged you, we have this natural response, is to retaliate. It's almost too much to make sense of when we, when we see this story. And yet, this is the beauty of grace. This is the beautiful, magnificent thing that we're talking about. Jesus' genius of grace. There, there are circumstances and moments in life where our reactions to something really are justified. You know, we lose our job and financial security. We snap at someone close to us. Or, or, or maybe we shut down emotionally after a heart is broken. Or, or we're overlooked for a job promotion or get a difficult diagnosis and end up lashing out at those closest to us. In all of these situations, our actions are usually forgivable once the context is understood. Yet true grace, at its best, takes place when life is under pressure, when things aren't going as planned, when everything is falling apart. These are the moments that either define us with our attitudes, or we choose to define the moment with our actions. In every situation like this, Jesus found himself always rising above, being bigger than the moment. He never allowed himself to be lowered to the level of those attacking him or attempting to bring him down. He would rise above the attacks and calls us 
to choose the same higher way. He calls us to follow his example. I, I know this, 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 this runs so contrary to culture, but this is what he's calling us to. Throughout Jesus' life, he would face the same circumstances that produce bitterness in us or paralyze us with fear. And yet Jesus was this exquisite, magnificent example of what it means to embody grace. For the scope of human history, our means of viewing ourselves as righteous or right has always been to point out the mistakes and missteps of others. If we can point everyone's attention to someone that's doing things worse, we look better. We look right or righteous. Politicians will spend millions of dollars on marketing campaigns pointing out all the problems and hypocrisies of their competitors, all the while concealing their own. Celebrities paint this beautiful picture of, of their perfect lives, all the while practicing destructive habits behind closed doors. Even in religious circles, church leaders can be guilty of holding people to standards that they aren't even willing to keep themselves. We live in a world where hypocrisy has become the counter-argument to grace. Like, if you only knew the other side, you would understand they don't deserve this. Extending grace, forgiving, and exercising healing instead of inflicting pain is met with that kind of an argument. Like, if you only understood and the argument, the counter-argument to grace is hypocrisy. They don't deserve grace because of this and that. And then you look at the grace of Jesus, the life that Jesus lived, this remarkable character trait of God, grace. If God, if God, who has every right to find us guilty, refuses to do so, how can we not forgive each other? If God, who knows all the wrong we have done, nothing is hidden from his sight. If that God could still choose to seek out our wholeness and extend to us freedom, how can we not take the same approach with other human beings? As Scott comes up uh, on the guitar here in a minute. This, this struggle <clears throat> of condemning is really a difficult struggle because here's the deal. <clears throat> Condemning is easy. It's so much easier to condemn, to cancel. That's the easy way to do it. It comes naturally. It, it may be ugly and destructive, but to be honest, it's easier. It's simpler. Grace, on the other hand, grace is challenging. It's difficult. Sometimes it seems totally impossible but it transforms both the giver and recipient into something beautiful. Grace provides room to grow, to adapt, to mature, to repent of past mistakes. Grace believes in the potential of the future. As we walk this journey of following Jesus, as we live in a world that is polarized, as we live in a world where it's expected and assumed that we reject, condemn, and kick people to the curb that are perceived enemies of us. Whether it be in your workplace, your school, in society, politics, uh, your career, wherever it is. It's assumed that's what we do. Imagine the message that is sent. When people who claim to follow Jesus actually follow him. And what they do and how they respond 
is with grace. This beautiful, magnificent, glorious grace. Not a grace that we conjure up in and of ourselves, but a grace that was first shown to us, that we simply become the conduits of. And while grace can seem so impossible, this is what makes the work of Jesus so remarkable. He gives grace freely to anyone who asks of it. Think about that for a second. Jesus gives grace freely to anyone who asks for it. And this is the simple thought that I want to share with you as we kind of prepare to close this morning. The beauty of grace is that it's undeserved and unexplainable. We like to explain everything and we like, a, we like, we like all the reasons on why we deserve something. If we're going to get a promotion at work, we want all the reasons why, especially when the other person's going to get it. When, 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 when everything's not going, we want all the reasons. The beauty of grace is that it's actually undeserved. We don't deserve it, and it's unexplainable. We can't say why. This expression of grace from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane isn't just a good story that we can learn from, but it's both a model of what Jesus has done for us, and it's an example of what he calls us to do for others. See, grace, grace is most needed when it's most undeserved. In, in a minute, we're going to sing a song, a song that you're all familiar with, whether you're new to church or not. This is your first time, your thousandth time. I promise you, you will recognize this song we're going to sing. As we sing the song, I want you to process two questions, two simple questions, and then we're going to kind of apply those after the song. The first one is this. Have you received the undeserved, unexplainable grace of Jesus? Have you personally received it? You may not have received it. You may be like, uh, that sounds awesome, but I'm not aware of it. <clears throat> you know, there's certain things in life that when you experience it, like you're forever changed. The first time you own an iPhone, maybe. Maybe that's a bad example for you. <clears throat> the first time you, the, the first time you purchase that like really cool gadget or, or that, 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 that uh, new car or, or whatever it might be, like Everything changes. Why? Because your experience with it changes you. Changes your perspective on it. Have you experienced, received the undeserved, unexplainable grace of Jesus? Personally. You can, you can think it's you know, just a religious thing or not, but have you experienced it? Have you received something that doesn't make any sense and is completely undeserved? The second question is this. Have, who in your life needs to be extended the undeserved, unexplained grace of Jesus from you? Who do you need to extend it to? I've been preparing and processing this for a couple weeks and man, this message has hit me hard. So many different areas of my life where I've received the grace of Jesus, but I haven't always been willing to extend the grace of Jesus. You aren't meant to be simply a recipient of his grace. You are meant to be a giver of his grace. You are simply a recipient so that you can give it more authentically. Do you hear that? We are not the end all, be all to this world. We are God's children, his sons and his daughters. And he has called us to step into his grace so that we can give and exercise his grace in a world that it is so foreign in.
the grace of Jesus is not present in our world anywhere, even in some churches. And he's called us to say, God, I want your grace and I want to give your grace. So as we sing this song together, you can stay seated. We're going to sing this song. I want you to process those two questions. Have you received the grace of Jesus? And who do you need to give the grace of Jesus to? Let's sing this song together and then we'll close. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.